This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cape Fear Unearthed, a podcast from Star News Media. I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter for the Star News here in Wilmington, North Carolina. When you're not listening to me talk about history on this podcast, you can read my byline on coverage of the city, the local film and television industry, and my weekly TV Hunter column. This week, it's a very special episode of the podcast because we're going to be grabbing our shovel and digging into the final story of our first season of Persisting Legends, Historical Oddities, and Mysterious Figures. As always, I'm going to share with you the story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend and then bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to discuss the impact of the story and whether or not history can be trusted. Now, as I mentioned, this is the last episode of our first season. And so many of you have told us how you've enjoyed these episodes and we are by no means done. We have some really exciting things we'll be doing in the off season in the coming months as we work on season two. So stick around at the end of this episode to hear more about what we have in store. Before we get to any of that, Let's settle in for this season finale episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we hunt down the beast of the Cape Fear. When something goes bump in the night, we all sketch a different picture in our mind of what could be lurking in the darkness. Is it a boogeyman watching from the closet or lying in wait under the bed, ready to snatch at your ankle as soon as you slip out from under the safety of the covers? Or is it a fearsome monster living and hunting in the dark unknown of the woods. Or perhaps it's even something more sinister, another person with a thirst for violence and blood. Whatever we picture in the darkness to accompany that unexplained noise, it's all born from what we fear and a little of what we've seen in the movies. Over the centuries, plenty of people have reported seeing monsters and creatures that can't be explained. Bigfoot stomping through the forest, a Yeti leaving tracks in the snow, Nessie breaching the surface of Loch Ness Lake. Whatever creature you've heard of, or maybe even encountered yourself, these tales of such abnormalities have long been shared through the tears of those who saw them firsthand and through the storytellers looking to frighten their friends crowded around the campfire. There are so many stories that even the Cape Fear region has a few, though most can be chalked up to pure legend. Have you ever heard of the giant snake living at the mouth of the Cape Fear River? Stories of the serpent go back as far as the Native Americans, according to some authors. One writer claims Lord Spencer Compton, Earl of Wilmington, spotted the long gray serpent himself on the waters in the 1730s, describing it as some 40 feet long. Sailors on the Santa Clara III reported colliding with the snake in 1947 as the vessel passed through the region. Although its existence may be nothing but a tall tale, it was at least given a proper name, Willie, for the town around which it swam. A creature who went on a shorter-lived reign of terror in downtown Wilmington in 1909 wasn't lucky enough to be named. It was only known as the Santer. It all happened over a course of the week early that year, when reports surfaced of a large brown beast, completely covered in shaggy hair, with long claws and bloodshot eyes, roaming the streets on all fours, killing small animals. 
1974 Wilmington Morning Star article spoke of the inciting incident that put the city on edge. It happened when a dog was reportedly mauled by the creature at 9th and Castle Streets. When the pooch was found, its hindquarters were missing, believed to have been consumed by the creature. The next night, a bulldog was killed south of town. On a third night, another dog was attacked at 9th and Chestnut Streets. This time, its owner, brandishing a baseball bat, came to the canine's rescue, but swung at the creature and missed, killing his own dog instead. Fear spread like a virus through the town as residents took their animals inside, fearing for their safety. It even led one teenage boy to shoot in the direction of a schoolyard, according to one article, thinking he had found the elusive creature. He hadn't. Instead, he was charged with injuring five people and told the police he was out of his mind after seeing the Santer in the woods days prior. As word of the Santer's visit to Wilmington traveled the state, other counties reported their own encounters as far back as the 1800s. But when February 1909 arrived, sightings in the port city went cold. The Santer had vanished. Days later, reports sprung up of it being spotted in other counties, but there was no evidence as chilling as the dog killings in the heart of Wilmington. But what was the Santer? Your guess is as good as any spoken in the last century. But its legend pales in comparison to one that sprung up in Bladen County. The Beast of Bladenboro is a mystery drenched in blood and fear. It starts in 1954 when local newspapers reported dogs, goats, cows, and other vulnerable four-legged animals had fallen prey to a vicious predator that broke their jaws, flattened their skulls, and drained their blood. Townwide gossip likened it to a vampire. Like the Santer, its presence led to hysteria. People retreated to the cover of their homes, while some men took up arms to protect their family, and as a point of pride, hunted down. In a story for the Star News in 2006, former staff writer Amy Hotz dug up sensationalized headlines of the day, which only served to stoke more fear. Some of those headlines read, Mysterious Beast is Still at Large. Another read, Vampire Tendencies Found in Bladenboro's Monster. And a particularly punchy headline read, Guns and Dogs Circle Bloodlusty Beast. A January 5, 1954 Morningstar article provides insight into the tension gripping the town. The first sentence of that story read, quote, This nervous town chewed its collective nails today, dreading the pitch of night that might bring a return visit by a mystery killer beast with a vampire lust. End quote. As the killing spree continued, a thousand men, some big game hunters hungry for a newsworthy kill, and others, simply everyday local farmers, are said to have scoured the woods around the town with only a hodgepodge description to lead the search. According to those wide-ranging resident accounts, the beast was said to be the size of a big cat or dog, or maybe it was a bear or a panther. It could have been 100 pounds, or maybe only 85 or 90. It was between three and six feet long, had shaggy hair, and one description described it as having runt-like ears. In the midst of the mania, a local woman told the Wilmington Morning Star that when she stepped out on her front porch one evening, she met the eyes of the beast, and it began to charge at her before she fled inside. With her account, 
folks began to believe its appetite was no longer satisfied by animals. The beast of Bladenboro now wanted human flesh. Even if that was the case, it still didn't pass up a dog if it crossed its path. Hotz found reports that the beast killed more than half a dozen canines during this time, even dragging one into Green Swamp. The hunt was eventually deemed too dangerous by local law enforcement because so many people had flooded the woods and swamp for their chance at the kill. And then, snap. A bobcat had been caught in a trap placed in the woods on January 13, 1954. Some believed the beast was finally bested. Others weren't so sure. Even the local sheriff told the newspaper that he was crossing his fingers on the matter and simply hoping it was over. Whenever an animal turned up dead or a mysterious sighting went unexplained in the days and weeks that followed, articles would spring up questioning if the beast was truly gone. Questions lingered for years, and the events even inspired a similar case with the Beast of Bolivia, which was believed to be a bobcat killing local animals in 2007. The Beast, and to some degree Amy Hotz's Star News' story, even spawned its own annual festival, which is now in its 12th year. The Beast of Bladenboro Festival, or Beast Fest as it is called by local residents, will be held on October 26th and 27th this year. The story may never have again reached the fever pitch of that chilly January in 1954, but the memories still linger of when an entire town went on the hunt for the Beast of Bladenboro. Joining me now is Amy Hotz, a former staff writer for the Star News and the author of the story I mentioned previously about the Beast of Bladenboro. Amy, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Hunter, thanks for having me. I, I enjoy uh, talking with you guys about stuff like this. Absolutely. And this is a fascinating episode and a fascinating topic because the Beast of Bladenboro is uh, something that I know a lot of people who've lived here for a while have heard about at least a little bit. But it's, it's just kind of a, a weird corner of history for this area that this even happened. And, it you know, people might say that it, you know, that's just legend. But it was reported right in the newspaper, in the Wilmington Morning Star. There's those headlines that I mentioned in the story. And so this was something that actually happened. This was this was a, a time in this area's uh, past where people actually went out and hunted for what they thought was a beast. So it, it, it's definitely fascinating, to say the least. Yeah, it's uh, weird news for any part of the world, I think, but especially uh, southeastern North Carolina. Yeah, it's a gift that keeps on giving. This this one pops up quite a bit. But when it was brought up to me, actually, I, you know, I've lived in Wilmington my entire life up until about seven years ago. And uh, my family goes way back in Wilmington. And I had never heard about the uh, Beast of Bladenboro before uh, until, um, you know, writer uh, Ben Steelman brought it up one day. Uh, we were chit-chatting about something else and said, you know, I, I think this is the uh, anniversary of the Beast of Bladenboro. And uh, I told him I had never heard of it, which is was surprising because I'm also a huge history buff, especially for uh, local Wilmington history. And so uh, I Googled some things and sure enough, we hit it right on the head, right around the uh, 50 year anniversary of the events that happened. Yeah. And so this story that you wrote, it's, it's, it's a, just a fantastic piece of writing, first of all. Uh, it was kind of insane to just read. Uh, you really kind of went to the heart of this community even 50 years later. Uh, but you talked to some really colorful characters who were around that time and even participated in the hunt of this, this beast of Bladenboro. How did you kind of go about starting the research of finding these people? Well, 
Well, uh, once uh, Ben Steelman told me that uh, you know, it was the 50-year anniversary, I knew that there had to be some kind of a paper trail about it because uh, from, from just what he said, it, it seemed like you know something that would definitely make the newspapers. So my first trip was to the New Hanover County Library. I am really good friends with um, the local history librarian. Uh, she's now retired, but Beverly Tetterton and also uh, Joe Shepard over there too helped me out with that. Uh, so they pointed me in the right direction and um, I started going through piles of uh, microfiche from 1954 and anything that had you know beast or bladenburg in it um i made sure that i made note of and uh i just went through chronologically to try to get a timeline of the story well and i I did the same thing you know after i read your story and and read some other uh writings of this this particular uh case here in bladenburg i went and looked at those newspapers and and they are absolutely there they're there for anyone to look at at the new hanover county library And it's kind of fascinating to see these headlines. You know, a lot of people talk about how news in 2018 is kind of uh, sensationalized and (laughs) and attention grabbing. But if you look at some of these headlines that I mentioned already, you know, bloodlusty beast, vampire tendencies found in Bladenborough's monster, you know, (laughs) just don't even seem real, but they are right there in print which is just kind of a fascinating time machine back into uh, 1954 and what uh, newspapers were reporting about, even in small towns like this. Yeah, it was a big treat to uh, to read some of the color from back in 1954. And I think that's probably what uh, motivated me to look a little bit further into the story instead of just, you know, doing a quick hit of some old news. You know, like you said, the bloodlust of the beast, the vampire aspect of the animal, uh, you know, people shaking in their boots, being terrified of uh, some creature out there that they can't identify. I mean, who wouldn't want to look farther into that, right? Exactly. I mean, I kept looking even when they had kind of wrapped up the search, uh, just because I was curious if there were any more fun headlines to look at. I mean, again, just working at a newspaper now and, and working at, you know, what is a, a descendant of the Wilmington Star, uh, Wilmington Star, uh, Morning Star, which is the Star News. Uh, it, it's interesting. I can't even think about us putting a, a headline today that says, you know, guns and dogs circle bloodlusty beast. It would, uh, if nothing else, it'd be fun to write. So you, uh, you said that, as you mentioned, you, you dug a little deeper than just the headlines. You, you went out there and, and started asking questions and people pointed you to a few people who actually participated in that hunt for this beast in 1954. And again, you found some colorful people, one of them even named Tater Shaw, who was just a fascinating man in this story. Uh, What was it like to find these, these men and these people who were there during this time and kind of hear their stories and, and did they remember it very clearly? Sure. Yeah. First of all, I, I love going out into uh, into the outskirts of towns or even out into, into the country because that's where you find like, you know, real true blue collar people. And those people, I think more so than most, know how to tell a good story. They're honest, but they're they're brutally honest in, in their words and how they tell it. So it was it was really easy. I just had to find the ones who uh, who gave me the really good stories about uh, what they had seen and heard during that time period. I think at that time I was driving a uh, a green convertible Jeep Wrangler and um, <laughs> jumped in there. And, and I think uh, Bladenboro is about sixty miles west of Wilmington. Made a nice little trip. And so the first uh, the first instances in the story where you see me um, in Bladenboro actually physically there is, is stopping at a grocery store and a gas station because after that trip I needed uh, a drink. So while I was there, I just saw some folks that looked approachable and I just, for the heck of it, I asked them if uh, if they knew about it and just kind of get a feel for if the story still stood in the community. And it did. It definitely seemed to have resonated. I mean, obviously you were doing this 50 years later, but these these people, they talk about this 
this hunt and this this beast and, and memories of this, you know, very clear. And as you mentioned, very honestly, is just the kind of the words even that, uh, you know, Mr. Shaw uses, Tater Shaw, he uh, it, he was the owner of a gas station. And, and he talks about this creature in this time period with such, you know, vivid, you know, pictures of it. And, and I like that you were able to find that it still resonated with people. Um, what was it like to talk to him in particular? Because he's a big part of the story to kind of get his recollections, because at the time that you talked to him, he was in a nursing home. Yeah, Tater was a hard nut to crack. Um, like the story says, uh, the town manager that I just by chance ran into um, as one of the first people I met in Bladenboro, she's the one who directed me to him. I, I guess he was kind of well known in the community. Uh, for for having a connection to the beast, and uh, it just so happened that the nursing home was right down the road from the town hall, so I didn't know if I would be able to get in or not. But I walked in, and there was a nurse standing there. She took my name as a visitor and direct me, directed me to the uh, the the gentleman in the wheelchair that was in the commons area there. I still remember it pretty clearly, even though it was 12 years ago. You know, he he was you know very well kept gentleman, and um, I, I introduced myself. And told him, you know, that I was looking into uh, writing a story about the Beast of Bladenboro. And, and he immediately kind of gave me this look and shook his head and threw his hand up. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm tired of talking about that. You know, that you don't really want to hear about that. That's old news. And, and you know, I'm tired, tired of people asking me about it. But uh, I don't know. I, I took a liking to him for some reason. So I, I kind of stuck with him a little while and hung out with him for a minute. And then I looked at him after we chatted about other things, and I, I said, you know, Mr. Shaw, I said, I don't think that you have too much going on today. Um, you know, <laughs> Larry was sitting in a wheelchair with a bunch of elderly folks piddling along around him. And uh, he kind of looked at me and says, okay, come on. And then we went down to uh, to his room to have a quiet place to talk. So when, when we got to his room, you know, I, I was struck by uh, the, the pictures on the wall. You know, he was a World War II veteran. He uh, he seemed to have a great deal of um, love and respect for his family. And once he started talking, uh, he really he really did, I think, have the, the, the best stories about the beast and, and probably the most accurate stories of anybody that I talked to. It is fascinating just to kind of read. And I encourage anyone who is listening to this podcast to go read your story because Again, it's just it's just a fantastic piece of writing that really captures just how much this story still resonated and still resonates in that community and in this community. I mean, a lot of the stories that we do on this podcast, we do because people know about them, whether they know about them as, you know, tall tales or fables or anything, they still resonate in this community because they're local stories. And, and this is absolutely one of those because it, it was still kind of living within the memory of these residents. Um, and obviously this was, this was more than a decade ago. And, and some of the people that you talked to have since passed on. And that's one big reason I wanted to yeah. bring you into this conversation because you, uh, you, you got to to talk to them, which um, I'm insanely jealous of because they sound like their stories would have been uh, pretty cool to hear. What did you think about the Beast of Bladenboro when you started doing this research? I know that you said you were fascinated by local history. Uh, since you didn't know it, what were your thoughts on on this thing that was lurking in the woods in, in Bladenboro? Uh, well, first, I want to say that um, shortly after the story ran, I don't remember exactly how long it was, but uh, one of Mr. Shaw's relatives called me to let me know that he had passed away mm-hmm. and um, and thank me for writing the article because it was a little, little bit of something that the family could take with them and a little piece, piece of uh, of uh, Mr. Shaw that would, uh, you know, live on 
in, in the newspaper because anybody can still go and, and look it up. So that was really oh, nice that's, to that's, get that feedback great. from this movie. As far as what I think about the, the Beast of Bladenboro, you know, being a big history buff like I am, I, I don't discount a whole lot because I've, I've done enough research on my own family and, and other things to know that there's always a kernel of truth and everything. Um, there's usually kind of the real story and then there's there's things that insert themselves into the story and, and depending on how many how many things sprout off of it is is kind of kind of equates to how believable the story can be. So I, I believe there was something out there that was killing things. You know, Mr. Shaw saw it uh, and the other gentleman that I, I interviewed too, they saw it firsthand. And I'm not going to say that, that they weren't telling the truth because I, I have no reason to believe that. I, I really do think that they saw what they said they saw. In my opinion, not being there in 1954, just, just reading the articles and talking with the people, I, I think it could have been a, a cougar. Some people say it was more dog-like, but um, and I know that biologists in North Carolina say that cougars really aren't in this area, but that that was my my initial thought after I I got all my paperwork together and I started writing the story was it's probably a cougar. Yeah, and I almost like that. It's almost the story is not even about whether it was true or not. It's what people have remembered about it or what people have kind of pieced together through the last six decades since this happened about what they think it was just based on kind of the wild mm -hmm. stories. I mean, just for your story, uh, the Star News enlisted a local law enforcement sketch artist to put together an image of what these descriptions of the Beast of Bladenboro from 1954 would have looked like had you had a visual and I'll post that and your story to our Facebook group so people can kind of see, you know, it, when I'm looking at it right now, it, it's it's like a, a cat, like, like a panther. And that's exactly what people described it as. Some of the traits were four and a half feet long, bushy, resembling a bear or a cat or a panther, 150 pounds of footprint like a dog, 190 to 100 pound lion. You know, it, there was such a variety in things that people kind of got to fill in what they wanted to with their own imagination, especially after the fact. But I just love that this happened, you know, that it, it's, it's, you can look back at it in a newspaper, you can see the progression of the hunt for this thing, and that it was very real for the people who lived here. You know, there was hysteria, there was, people out there with their guns armed ready to protect their town and their family and and you know probably get a little uh, get a little ego boost if they were the ones to kill it and I think that's just kind of a fascinating chapter of local history that just so happens to be tied to what was described as a vampire beast living in the woods yeah, absolutely uh and Gary Longordo the uh, the artist who uh, drew that rendering. He was actually a uh, forensic artist, uh, freelancer for the uh, Wilmington Police Department at the time. And he uh, also, a little nugget of uh, trivia, was the person who, I think in 1995, designed the UNCW logo. The, uh, oh, wow. the boxy The boxy bird-looking lo logo that they just um, they just phased out. Yeah. He, he was the same artist who did that. And what I did was I took the articles uh, from the library and I uh, typed, every time I, I saw a sentence that had a description from somebody i typed it into a word document and i just sent him that email just just of sentences of descriptions and that's what he came up with it allows people to kind of see what people were fearful of what was living in the woods they didn't know i mean there was a hunt for it it you know it, there were days where you know people just kind of stayed in their homes or went out with guns and so i think it's interesting to kind of see what people pictured in their minds when they were kind of scared of what was lurking outside in bladenboro yeah you gotta think about it uh think about being a person living in a really small town out in the country and uh, reading these newspaper reports about the 
this thing going out, crushing skulls, breaking jaws. And when the bodies are found, there's not a drop of blood left in the carcass. Um, you know, you're usually out in the middle of nowhere. This is a farming community. They also, uh, you know, big lumber community. So it's very rural. You know, you, you are responsible for your own protection at that point. Uh, yeah. So it, uh, yeah, it, it uh, from what, everything that I've heard and read, it, it made people very nervous all the time. I think there was one account where the newspaper said that nobody left, if, the, if a person owned a gun, they didn't leave their home without a gun during that period of time because they were afraid it would sneak up on them and, and, and hurt or kill them. Um, and there was one guy uh, I read about who was so nervous uh, that he heard something outside. He busted out of his door and just, you know, boom, boom two shots with his shotgun and then got his flashlight and looked and it was his kid's uh his kid's bicycle and the seat was all blown to pieces but uh, i think that uh from what i've heard and read things really took a turn when uh supposedly the beast showed interest in in this woman who was outside on her porch one day she apparently is uh um from what i've found the the person who saw the the beast the clearest and had the, probably uh -huh. the best description of it and then when they investigated there were a lot of uh, large cat-like paw prints around her yard um and it seems like after that happened is when things started to get really serious and all these uh big game hunters started coming by and you have to remember too 1954 was right around the time when uh, Robert Rourke um, was was really big uh, with his journalism and writing. He's a, a famous uh, writer from Southport, North Carolina, and uh, he's, he was a big game hunter like Ernest Hemingway. And, uh, uh, you know, all this was going, going on around the same time. So, uh, you know, according to accounts at the time, you had all your, your big local hunters and then all these big game hunters coming in from Africa just to shoot this whatever it is that nobody knows. So uh, it was it was a hopping town at, at the moment. And um, I, I think uh, the business people there really got um, the, the, the best part of the beast in 1954. That, that's a good way to put it because, you know, and just another element of having a bunch of people running around with guns trying to look for something in a small town. I mean, you never know what's going to happen, unfortunately. Thankfully, there was no one on that bike when that man shot it. Yeah, and th that's what stopped the search for the beast, too is finally the the mayor i think his name was fussel uh that's a big name in that area too he uh he said you know enough's enough somebody's going to end up shooting somebody else accidentally you know let's put it into it and it just i don't know if it's coincidence or what but around that same time is when they finally did shoot a fairly large bobcat you know they they put the bobcat up for observation at a gas station and um said okay this is the beast everybody go home now basically ended it even if it wasn't the end of it exactly wow. and, and at the end of the article you know it, it kind of leaves that open because mr uh mr shaw tater shaw he told me that there were a couple of instances even after that bobcat was shot but it didn't really make the news or nobody put up a big uh, big stink about it for some reason and it just uh, after a while it just kind of faded away but nobody really knows to this day exactly what it was well if nothing else the the memory of that time at least lived on with that generation and it, uh, it's a it's a real shame that mr shaw's not around to, to have been a guest because i would have had him on this podcast in a heartbeat but uh i'm glad you got to talk to him and it sounds like if nothing else you got to to spend a very uh interesting afternoon in bladenboro talking to uh talking to these to these gentlemen yeah it was a good time and they're really good people i i, I enjoyed it and to have remembered it for 12 years you know i, I must have enjoyed it yeah it's kind of hard to forget anything when you're when you're working with a vampire beast exactly amy thank you so much for joining me oh you're welcome hunter i appreciate it thank you that's it for this week's episode of cape fear unearthed and a wrap on our first season 
Thank you so much for joining me this and every week. Thank you so much for joining me this week and every week through Dial This First Season. Cape Fear on Earth will be back for a second season starting in early January 2019, so you only have to wait a few more months for episodes. Until then, we aren't leaving you with nothing. On October 18th, we will premiere a special episode of the podcast looking at the history of the locally filmed television show One Tree Hill, which has become a landmark project for the area and the local film industry. For that episode, we will be joined by a very special guest, James Lafferty, who starred as Nathan Scott on all nine seasons of One Tree Hill. If you are a fan of the region's film history, or even just a fan of One Tree Hill, it's going to be a can't-miss episode. Also, be on the lookout for a few more special episodes to premiere this fall, including a special one full of Christmas stories. And then we will be back for season two in January. In the coming weeks, be sure to share your thoughts on all of our episodes on Twitter with the hashtag CFUnearth. And be sure you are a member of our Facebook group where I will be sharing all the news about the podcast and announce opportunities to win cool Cape Fear Unearth t-shirts in the coming weeks. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearth on Facebook. Finally, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear and Earth was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com and on Twitter at Hunter Ingram SN. As we close out this first chapter of Cape Fear on Earth, I want to take a moment just to thank all of our listeners, and I want to again encourage you to get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you.